0: Hey everyone, welcome to 1111 Calling Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Haynes. And today we are going to be chatting with Mark Gober. Mark is a former Wall Street investment banker and a Silicon Valley strategist. He is also the author of the award-winning book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and then the sequel, An End to Upside-Down Living. And his new book is coming out this fall, An End to Upside-Down Liberty. He is also the host of Where Is My Mind podcast. I'm really excited to have you here today, Mark. Welcome to 1111 Calling.
1: Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Super excited about this conversation. Um, There's so much we could go into today. There's so much to chew on within um, the books that you've written as well as Um, references in your books to various other books and podcasts and philosophers, etc. But um, I think a good place for us to start is maybe if you could give our listeners just a little brief background on yourself and how you came to write um, your three books.
1: Well, it was never something I expected to do. Uh, this has all emerged really within the last five years. Uh, my background's very traditional. Uh, I went to Princeton as an undergrad, went into investment banking in New York right after graduating. So I was there in 2008 during the financial crisis. It was a very hectic, crazy time. Um, a tough time. Investment banking is a tough industry in general, but to be there during that time, especially right out of school, mm-hmm. was challenging. <laughs> but um, I ended up deciding to leave investment banking in 2010, and then joined a firm where I spent 10 years um, advising technology companies, focusing on business strategy, intellectual property. So really nothing to do with the books that I've written, for the most part. Although my newest book delves into economics a bit, so my background helps there. Um, But five years ago, I was listening to podcasts myself, um, listening to business and health shows. And that was around the time podcasts were starting to become more popular. And I had friends sending me just forwarding me links to different episodes. So I started to listen. It was just a fun thing to do. And I realized that there was a lot I could learn. And there was an alternative health podcast called Extreme Health Radio, where I heard a woman named Laura Powers, who talked about her own psychic abilities and things that sounded really out there to me. But she was speaking in a very um, credible manner. She was speaking about the things, you know, not in a Not in a way that I ever heard before. It wasn't like it was science fiction. And she was speaking from her own experience. And it was enough for me to just pique my curiosity. And I ended up listening to her podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviewed many people that had similar experiences. And after a little while of listening to her show, I realized that there was a commonality in what people were describing. And it had nothing to do with what I thought of as, as being like the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, she was, they were talking about psychic abilities, the survival of consciousness after bodily death, other realms and dimensions that we can't see with our eyes. And my worldview prior to that was that we live in a random and meaningless universe. And that when we die, there's no consciousness, there's no awareness, no memory. That's the end. So we can try to create meaning in our lives, but we're really just rationalizing because once we die, there's no consciousness. So I had this very nihilistic, bleak view of the world, which is what our scientific paradigm and our scientific teachings really imply if you take them literally, which I did. So here I was confronted with this totally new worldview uh, after having lived a life of, of thinking things were a different way. And it was extremely disorienting and disruptive to my life at the time in 2016. But I was just endlessly curious and still am to try to understand what's going on here. And that led me to start reading scientific papers and reading books and listening to podcasts. And it's basically here we are three years later, and I've written three books, did a podcast series where I interviewed dozens of scientists and experiencers in this space. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly trying to learn. And the more that I learn, the more I feel like there's uh, so much that I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. I'm always been a curious soul and always attracted to anything that's what I call the curious bits in life. So I'm a seeker also. And I would agree the, the more I kind of learn and explore, the more I realize the less I know. <laughs> if yeah. that makes any sense. Yes. Um one thing I, I'm wondering if you can um help explain is the difference between a physicalist theory versus one mind theory. Yeah.
1: Glad you asked that, because that's really central to all of the work that Mm -hmm. I'm doing. And it's central to my own paradigm shift, personally, and also happens to align with what spiritual traditions have been saying forever across various traditions. But the conventional worldview, which I was alluding to before, is the idea that our bodies, our brains, everything in the universe comes from physical material called matter. And this is where the name physicalism, some people say scientific materialism, comes from, that everything's material. So if we take it all the way back to the beginning of the universe based on modern scientific theory, uh, there was a big bang nearly 14 billion years ago. And so the universe was filled with these bits of matter, atoms, and lots of interactions between those atoms happened. Basically they started bumping into each other in this big random universe. And we call the interactions of matter chemistry. And in this large universe, there were lots of chemical reactions between these pieces of matter. And over time, Chance would tell us that you would end up with the formation of a molecule that can replicate itself. In other words, DNA. Mm -hmm. So biology, meaning human beings and other types of life forms, they emerge from the random interactions of pieces of matter. That's what physicalism says. And uh, the human body and other bodies develop brains in their biology. And from the brain, our consciousness, our sense of awareness and experiencing life. That's where consciousness comes from, the brain and the physical body. So Physicalism says that our consciousness comes from our brain, but more generally it comes from physical matter. And the implications, as I mentioned before, are things like, well, when we die, there's no consciousness. We are fundamentally separate from each other because there's my brain, my consciousness, your brain, your consciousness. We're part of the same universe, but there's a a real definitive separation between all of us. And also things like psychic abilities, non-local consciousness, telepathy, psychokinesis, which is mind impacting matter, all these things that people would call paranormal, they are impossible under the physicalist worldview. And that's why they would be called paranormal, because most, physical, most of science, the scientific world is physicalist. And so normal for them is physicalism, which means you can't have these paranormal things. Um, and so that's the conventional worldview that I grew up with. And, and a lot of the world believes that because that's what science points us toward. The alternative that I propose, and and many others have been supporting this scientifically, philosophically, and otherwise for a long time, is uh, what some would call one mind, the idea that consciousness is primary. So when I gave the the explanation of physicalism, we started with physical matter. At the very end, we got consciousness. After lots of random evolutionary processes over billions of years, what the one mind perspective suggests is that it's the reverse, The consciousness comes first and first, and yes, we have physical matter. Yes, we have chemistry and biological organisms and brains, but they all emerge within consciousness rather than saying all of those things give rise to consciousness. So it sounds like a subtle flip, but it's really a complete worldview change because if consciousness is the basis of everything, that means the part of us that's experiencing right now is part of the basis of all reality, (laughs) existing beyond all space and time, and that there is perception beyond what we are ordinarily perceiving on a daily basis. So the analogy that I like to use that helps bring this into something more concrete because it sounds very abstract is from Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, a philosopher, who says that all reality is one universal consciousness that we're a part of as represented by an infinite stream of water. So it's like we are individual whirlpools within this infinite stream. And that's why we have the sense of being individuals, but we're interconnected fundamentally. And also this implies that water from one whirlpool could get into another person's whirlpool, meaning my consciousness could get into your consciousness, meaning psychic phenomena or non-local consciousness, all of a sudden that's totally possible. And and also when a whirlpool stops being a whirlpool, meaning it delocalizes, it de-individuates, it's like water uh, basically just, it doesn't leave the stream, but it transitions into a new form. So it goes from being a whirlpool into being something else in the stream, meaning by analogy that when our physical body dies, our consciousness doesn't die. It simply transitions into a new state. So this flip in worldview, consciousness is the basis of everything and everything emerges within consciousness. All of a sudden that gives rise to lots of phenomena, which people would call paranormal. Mm -hmm. They would say those things are impossible, but it adds a new dimension of meaning to life. And for me, it's added a dimension of curiosity because if there's something beyond my whirlpool that I can't perceive, but which exists and has existed for a very long time, then what is that? And, and that's mm-hmm. what I've been trying to understand.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there's a, a lot there to unpack and, and kind of chew on. And for me personally, I, I believe those paranormal, anything you want to put under that label, right? It exists. I've known plenty of people personally who have experienced those things um I've experienced some of them myself and from that alone therefore I believe there's there's some something there there's some truth to that and so understanding um what that is and how it relates to the greater whole I think is that that exploration that both you and I are on right now and and many people are on and um one thing I wanted to ask, and I, I think this was in your second book and, and to Upside Down Living, is um, why this concept of, of the one mind theory is so threatening, not only to just the, the scientific community, but to governments?
1: Well, it's something that I discuss in my third book. Um, the one mind idea is incredibly empowering to the individual. So if, if in theory there were people in positions of power who understood that each individual person is powerful innately because we're part of this in- interconnected stream of consciousness and we have these abilities and that we don't die when the body dies and that the fear of death, even though it is understandable even if we understand the one mind because we, we experience this one life, this one body there is a, a diminishing of the fear of death when one understands and embodies this idea that we, actually our consciousness never dies. If people really understood that, they it would be much more difficult to control people and to bring them into a state of fear. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's a hypothesis. I, I can't mm-hmm. prove that's exactly what's going on, but it would make sense if, if someone had devious intentions, and there are many of those in the world. And in my third book, I write about the phenomenon of psychopaths. It's an mm-hmm. unpleasant topic, but this is a psychological phenomenon of individuals who lack empathy, empathy. So you literally, most of us can't relate to that. Mm-hmm. We can't think as someone who doesn't have empathy, but there are people who feel that way. And there's a spectrum, of course, in terms of um, that type of personality. But those who crave power, even if they're not full psychopaths, it would make sense to want to suppress anything that's empowering to individuals.
0: Yeah. I, um, I grew up very Catholic. I spent 12 years in Catholic school. And from very young age, probably first, second grade, I just remember thinking, I don't I don't buy this, you know, I couldn't put it into words. I, I wasn't, I didn't have the cognitive intelligence. I just knew intuitively in my gut that it didn't resonate with me. I, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. And I was always told that well, you just have to have faith. That's what faith is for. But um, you know, and I, as I grew older and um, I think I was sometime in high school that I, I, quit faking going to church because by that age, you know, it was like, I could walk down to church by myself. I didn't have to go at the same time. My parents was, were going and my dad noticed that I just quit even pretending to go. And I just explained to him, I didn't want to be a hypocrite mm. that to me, it felt very, um, I didn't feel authentic to go through these motions and, um, and that I didn't want to be a hypocrite and I didn't think he wanted me to be a hypocrite. And that's kind of where the conversation (laughs) for the most part ended on that, that subject. But the reason I bring that up is because I, I personally believe, um, there's a difference between spirituality and organized religion. And even when I say that, I think even within organized religions, a lot of them are talking about the same thing that is being studied in spirituality. However, I think the big difference is that a lot of religions use it as um, a means to control and Mm -hmm. also giving people that um, false sense of security that if they live a certain way or follow a religion in a certain way, then they're safe after death, you know? And I think that's what you're talking about, that, that, um, that idea that, if, if there is nothing after death, then what is it all for? And so I think that's kind of where this interweaving between religion and spirituality can get a little confusing. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: you're referring to a- another subtlety within this potential manipulation, which I think is really important to distinguish. One, the one that I was referring to was mostly the atheistic idea, which is mm-hmm. where I came from. There's no meaning to life. So Don't if you? you can convince people to believe that, That would be um, taking people out of their power if they they thought there was literally no meaning. But on the other side, which you're explaining, it's a very important one, is a manipulation within those who are already open to spirituality in some degree, but tweaking the the truth in some way. And so we have to wonder to what extent have religions or other groups manipulated the truth to steer people off course and allow them to be susceptible to control in other ways.
0: Right, and then and for what reasons? I think is is the bigger question. <laughs> yes, yes. And and maybe we'll get um, we'll touch a little bit more on that as we delve into the you know your third book yes. a little bit later on in the interview. Again, in your second book, you said something. Uh, you you brought up the term "follow the science," which is funny because that comes up all the time right now um, <laughs> since the beginning of COVID. And yeah. I studied biology and sports medicine in college and and so I immediately was like the science there's never any the like, there's yeah. not one science science is a is a a body of of thought and theory and and minds coming together and proving one thing disproving another constantly evolving so I always thought that that saying fell the science was odd But um, you mentioned in your second book that that concept is like a fundamentalist religion. What did you mean by that? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, the idea that the establishment scientific community, whatever that means, is is the word of truth, Mm -hmm. essentially. And in the mainstream community, the science, quote unquote, is this physicalist idea, even though they're trying to figure out the details of, how does, how does physics work? How did chemistry work? How does biology work? They are presuming physicalism, meaning consciousness comes from the brain, there's no paranormal, all that stuff is presumed. And they're just trying to figure out the details. And if you challenge that, what's known as a meta paradigm, meaning the paradigm underlying all other paradigms, physicalism, if you challenge that, you're a crazy person because we're, we're way past all this you know, spiritual stuff. We've advanced past that. And it's, it's religious in that it's almost something that you can't question. Mm -hmm. You can't question physicalism. You can't question and say, well, there's lots of scientific studies on telepathy or near-death experiences, or the University of Virginia that studied over 2,500 children who have past life memories. You can't talk about that because that would challenge the paradigm, and therefore there can be no explanation that is spiritual. Mm -hmm. And that's the perspective. So what I found in getting to know some of these scientists who are courageous enough to study alternative research in traditional academia, with the exception of a, a small group at the University of Virginia and a lab that used to be at Princeton University, which is, no longer exists, it shut down in 2007. Um, with, with those exceptions, for the most part, you can't study these alternative topics in mainstream academia. If you want to get tenure, you're in trouble. If you, uh, one scientist talks about being told to take her, uh, Research on precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens,
0: Mm -hmm. to take
1: that off her resume if she wanted to continue in this mainstream institution. So that is the science. The science is saying no. What you're studying is not part of the science. So we we're gonna reject it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where politics and bureaucracy and probably funding comes into um, maybe skewing the science at the academia level. Um, And I. Do you feel like that's starting to shift a little bit? I think I think somewhere isn't there some research into some of this going on at John Hopkins now? What's there that? is some
1: research on psychedelics, which psychedelics, relates to yes. to you know other realms of consciousness, so that's a positive incremental development. The most positive signs that I see are more in the background from the scientists I know who are outwardly studying these topics. They often get emails from mainstream professors and researchers who will say, "I can't talk about this publicly, but I'm really interested in what you're doing. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about it." So they're getting encouragement from people in the mainstream, but in terms of the pub, in terms of speaking about it publicly, there's still a lot of hesitancy.
0: Okay, but but it is a good sign, definitely, that there's even these underground conversations and for future studying going on of it, because eventually, I think once once there's enough there, it's there's too much to be silent about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I wrote, especially my first book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, which compiles all this evidence. So there's a chapter on telepathy. There's a chapter on quantum physics, chapter on near-death experiences, past life memories. I go through one by one and put all the Mm -hmm. evidence in one place. And the argument I make is, well, if any one of these things is real, we cannot explain it well with the physicalist model that consciousness comes from the brain, consciousness is stuck in our brain, and that's it but well, we can explain it much better if we take a new paradigm, one mind, one consciousness, mm-hmm. and would be able to explain it. And so one of the reasons I decided to do that is it, I thought it would give people permission to start exploring things creatively in their own mind, mm-hmm. even if they didn't speak about it publicly, to just have a little more confidence that, wait, there is a lot of scientific evidence. And many people have had personal experiences and this lends credibility to that.
0: Did you get a lot of pushback from, from other people you knew in academia or just that, um, I mean cuz you're you're in a whole different world of of, of community back then and they yeah. think you're kind of crazy for even going there.
1: I'm sure there are people who do think I'm crazy and I'm sure there are <laughs> naysayers. I have not heard from many of them. In fact, <laughs> I, on the whole, I've heard from a relatively small percentage of people that have read my books and listened to my podcast. So it's hard for me to gauge exactly yeah. who's who thinks what, but I think especially, I mean with really with all these topics where I'm starting off challenging such a fundamental paradigm, either one is open to it or not. And some people are not open to it and they'll close the book, I'm sure. And they won't even pick it up.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think um, people are either, like you said, open or not, or ready for it or not. Yeah. And at the end of the day, one of my favorite sayings is what somebody else thinks of you is none of your business. <laughs> so, right. you know, take it, take it or leave it. And that's their own journey. Right. In um, The end of the end to upside down thinking you say, and I quote, I view the belief that we are finite and separate to be the disease underlying virtually every problem in human society today. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes. so this idea comes from Rupert Spira, who I really respect as a philosopher in this area. Um, The idea that we are finite beings, meaning we have a limited time of experience and consciousness, and that we're fundamentally separate, that there's a me and a you and there's no hidden interconnection that we can't see. We inhabit the same universe, but that's it. That belief system leads to the idea, well, my life's meaningless fundamentally. I can make meaning, but it's, there's no intrinsic meaning built into the fabric of reality. So what I do in this life doesn't really matter. It only matters to the extent that I care about it. So morality is completely subjective. <laughs> there's no moral imperative built into anything. And if you, take, if you extrapolate that belief system, what it could lead to in certain people, it can lead to a desire for immense selfishness, immense power, and the not caring about other people, not caring about the planet, not caring about animals, for example. So if that belief were to be eradicated or to be recontextualized and say, wait, it seems like we're finite and separate, but actually at a different level of reality, we're not, we're interconnected, it would become rash, irrational to do many of the harmful behaviors that we see in the world today.
0: hmm yeah. And I think you talk about that as far as um uh stewardship, basically. Not only yes. being a steward uh for your for your own well being, your body, but for the environment as a whole. Is there yeah. anything you'd wanna discuss further about that concept?
1: It's an important concept. It's the idea that we have a responsibility as individuals to care, take care of our individual bodies, to take care of each other, to take care of all life forms and to take care of the planet, because we are interconnected as part of all of this. So to some degree, all of those external things that seem separate are us. Mm-hmm. They are fundamentally us. And when one takes that level of responsibility, there's just a different way of living in life. And I want to bring up a point that's it's central to so much of what I've learned. And I think makes this point really clear in the near-death experience phenomenon. So these are instances where a person has little or no brain functioning and yet has an incredibly clear consciousness. So they might experience what they would say, unconditional love. Their perception feels realer than real. They sometimes hover over their bodies and see things in the room that they shouldn't be able to see. Uh, They just encounter deceased relatives. I mean, really out there stuff, but they come back in their bodies and there are millions of these cases. And they say very convincingly that this happened to me and their lives are often changed forever. They become Mm -hmm. more spiritual. They sometimes change their jobs, get divorced. They're changed. It's not like a hallucination where it's just there's something they're afraid of and and there are different symptoms that occur. But the most convincing part of of this research is known as the veridical out-of-body experience. And that just means that what the person perceived when they're hovering over their body, when they should be clinically dead, like they're in cardiac arrest, they come back in their body and they describe what happened in the room, sometimes outside the room, and it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's not a hallucination. Right. <laughs> and sometimes the, the memory can be time stamped to an actual event. So you know what their body was doing at that time, and yet their consciousness knew something they should not have been able to know.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'll give one example that I mentioned in my new book, An End Upside Down Liberty, from Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia. He has a, a book that came out in 2021 called After describing his years uh, as a psychiatrist, looking at this phenomenon. And he talks about a case of a man who who said his doctor was flapping his wings like he was going to be flying during surgery. And Bruce Grayson said, wait, I've never heard of someone doing that. He must've hallucinated it. So he, he got a release form to be able to speak to the surgeon. And the surgeon said, yeah, I actually do that because I'm from Japan and I learned in medical school, like a technique where I don't use my hands. So it looks like I'm flapping my wings because I'm pointing with my elbows Huh. And the person saw this during a time he shouldn't have been able to perceive anything. Yeah. Um, so these are things where it's, I, there's no way he could have known that if he, right? So I, I give all this as a preface to say that near-death experiences are not hallucinations, maybe not every single one, but on the whole, this phenomenon that has been reported really throughout time right. and is reported with increased frequency today because we're able to resuscitate people more often yeah. due to medical advances. So now we have tons of cases. This phenomenon is not a hallucination. And that's significant because what happens and what people report during that time might tell us something about the broader stream beyond our whirlpool. And the most significant finding, in my opinion, is the life review phenomenon Mm -hmm. where people relive their whole lives in a flash during this period when they should be dead. They shouldn't have any consciousness and they relive events through the eyes of people that they impacted. So if they harm someone, they will feel that pain through that person's body. They'll feel what it was like and on the contrary if they did something that was really nice or loving they will experience that through other people's eyes so to give one example that i always refer to because i interviewed him his name's Danian daniel brinkley and my podcast called where is my mind episode six goes into this um he had four near-death experiences in his life and each time he had a life review so he was electrocuted he had open heart surgery twice and brain surgery once he remembered his time in vietnam in which he was a vicious combatant vicious is the word he used so he had to relive the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes and he said he also experienced the indirect effects so he felt like what it was like to be children who would no longer have a father they would no longer see their father again because he had killed the father in combat he said that wasn't that feeling was not quite as strong but he felt it so this phenomenon which many other people have reported Dr. Grayson says in about a quarter of near-death experience cases, this comes up Hmm. and radiation oncologist Jeffrey Long has studied near-death experiences. He has a whole database and he's found that around 20% of people report a life review. Mm -hmm. So that's about the percentage. We don't know why everyone doesn't come back with that memory. Maybe they experienced it, but don't remember it. There are lots of question marks, but this comes up a lot and it relates to the idea of the golden rule, which is treat people as you would like to be treated because- The nature of consciousness is of some kind of compassionate, loving state. So if that's really true and people come back, uh, Dr. Grayson talks about this in his book. He he says, what people say is that this is natural law. This is beyond just morality, right and wrong. Hmm. This is the law of the universe that people are describing that they encounter, that we are literally affecting each other in ways that are affecting us because we are everyone else.
0: Right. So if people understood that-
1: Right. And how how would they treat people?
0: Yeah. And that, that that concept comes up in, I mean, many religions and, or spiritual teachings. I was doing a meditation the other day. Um, It was a guided meditation by David G and he brought up several examples of that same concept. You know, it's phrased slightly different in, in different religions or philosophical teachings, but that that same concept of, you know, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. So there's something to that. When when things happen that um, repetitively or come up that often across different areas, then to me always, it's like, there's something there. There's something there, there has to be. So I, I find that really interesting. You know, one other thing that you mentioned that I want to talk about are four principles to live by. One being follow your values, your integrity, two, follow what feels viscerally passionate to you, or that is just a un, um, unwavering yes in your, your soul. Um, three, follow your intuition, which I think is huge. And four, do the obvious things. So I think those principles to live by why do you feel those are so important
1: for me it's been challenging when thinking about things from a spiritual worldview and totally shifting my life and realizing that we're part of this infinite stream of consciousness which as infinite intelligence that's something i've gone into in my books as well but if Mm -hmm. consciousness is underlying the entire universe with all of its infinite complexity then that consciousness by by logic must be of that intelligence level too Mm -hmm. So if we think about it, then each of us is embodying pieces of that intelligence. And we have this this, uh, responsibility that we are stewards for whatever unique gifts that come through us to embody those to the fullest. But at the same time, if we're part of a more cosmic intelligence, then that means there are things happening that are beyond the individual's control, mm-hmm. that there's an idea of surrender, that there, we have to allow things to flow through us rather than mm-hmm. being the ones trying to control everything. But then that can lead to a passivity where it's like, okay, well, then I should just sit on the couch all day because I'm going to surrender to this intelligence. Right. And that's not that's not right either. So there's a, always a paradox of it's it's one and the other together, even though mm-hmm. they seem to be contradictory. And what I'm describing there in those four methods of living is how I've been able to Think about being active while also being somewhat passive and receptive. Mm-hmm. And that's how I think about it is that I'm, I'm doing things based on my values. I'm following my passion. I'm following my intuition and I'm doing the next obvious thing. Mm-hmm. Those four things have been able, have enabled me personally to uh, be both active and passive.
0: And I think to kind of add to that is this idea that when you, when you show up and, and do those things for example then the universe shows up and me you there and and kind of gives like it you know I remember watching The Secret years ago and thinking when I first watched it I was like oh th- that's what I believe I never knew what I believed I knew what I didn't believe mm-hmm. but you know and that was kind of like the beginning to this opening, right? I mean, I think things come a little bit at a time or in these waves. Um, That's the way I look at it. And so that was like a first big um, kind of like, oh, aha thing. But then I think there was a misconception based on the secret that you can just sit back and daydream or or manifest and all the stuff's going to come to you and i don't agree with that i think it is that you have to take some actions based in authenticity integrity um with good intentions and then yeah. i think then the universe kind of meets you there and drops things in front of you to then further you along in a direction and i do believe that everybody has Um, whether you want to call them gifts or purpose in this world. And I think that paying attention that when you do those four, you know, those four principles, or if you follow those four principles, that you will get clarity around what it is you should do next or or what it is you are to share or how you are to continue to um, grow or continue on a spiritual path. So And I think um, a big point of this podcast is to get people to um, be open to that, recognize it when it's happening, have the courage to to be open and move in a certain direction when they feel really called to do so, even if it doesn't make sense, because you you don't have to understand where it's taking you, but just trust that it's probably taking you in a direction that's not only going to serve your highest good, but the highest good of others. So I think that that plays well into that, those four principles to to live by. And I think um, you had talked about that, you know, it kind of plays into it. Life starts to serve us when we commit to serving life wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of that same principle, really. And um, I think there is a big shift happening to where people are becoming more and more open to this. Um, Some people call it like a a mass enlightening or a big shift in a paradigm, a collective, um, uh, I don't know, not an epidemic of spiritual awakening, but something of that sort. And I think that concept kind of crossed my mind. Again, kind of another aha moment was, Around 2012, when it was supposed to be like the end of the world or whatever. And to me, um, the way I'm understanding it or feeling about it is it's almost an end to one type of consciousness and shifting um, that paradigm to where we have to start looking at things from a different conscious level. And um, what are your thoughts about that?
1: That's how I see it generally, too, that we're shifting into something, into a new paradigm, a new way of living and being. Yeah. Um, but that said, particularly when I wrote my second book and End Upside Down Living, I was focusing on how we can reorient our consciousness individually so that collectively we can reach this more elevated state. And I talked a little bit about this idea of discernment. I talk about compassion, but with discernment as an important characteristic to embody, because if we're one mind, we're all interconnected. We have life reviews, potentially karma that's related to that. It would make sense to want to be compassionate toward people. But Doing that without discernment can lead to problems for us individually. So a woman that I reference, she was interviewed on Buddha at the gas pump podcast. She entered very blissful states of consciousness and was so blissful and loving that she allowed a man into her home for months Mm -hmm. who then apparently manipulated her. And she said it was like hell.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So she was so loving that she let everything in. She wasn't aware of the wolf in sheep's clothing and what we're seeing I think, is both a mass awakening in terms of spiritual understanding, but also an unmasking of the, the wolves in sheep's clothing, mm-hmm. those that appear to be virtuous but are actually um, power hungry and want to control. So I mentioned that as distinct from the spiritual aspect, even though it's interrelated to it, mm-hmm. because they, they, they are... They are distinct and somewhat and relatively independent. And I I know, and I've observed this in the spiritual community, that there are those who are incredibly spiritually awakened that understand these principles that we've been talking about, but might be less inclined to pick up on the wolves and sheep's clothing, that might not understand the power structures and some of the control mechanisms that could be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mentioned in in my second book and in my third book, Ken Wilber. He's a philosopher who says, Mm there's waking up, cleaning up and growing up. Yeah. These are lines of development that which he says in his research, they're relatively independent. So you could have this totally awakened enlightened person who maybe hasn't developed in other ways. And so what, what we're seeing in terms of this new consciousness that you're referencing, and I agree with, will have to be not just one of the lines of development, it's going to have to be multiple. And the ones that are standing out for me right now are this, this waking up Um, I like cleaning up too, which is kind of getting rid of our individual traumas, but also collective traumas based on all the atrocities that have happened. That's really important because if we if we try to ignore our past and not clear that, that can lead to that can bring us down in the future, and also growing up, which is a maturation to Mm -hmm. not only take personal responsibility for our actions and not be not call ourselves the victim all the time, but to acknowledge the reality of evil and not to not to just stick our heads in the sand because we don't want to acknowledge unpleasant topics, because if we do that, then we're, we're, susceptible to it. So it's understanding that there is darkness too. It's helping us to evolve, but not letting it consume us. All of those things and probably other things too need to happen in order for us to reach what I would call and many call this next stage of evolution in our consciousness.
0: So on that basic level of, of taking those, those three concepts, um, the the waking up, cleaning up. You said was the second yep. one, and, growing, and up. growing up. So at the most basic level, how would you suggest to our listeners that they can do each one of those? Okay, or start
1: to do. Great questions. Great question. With waking up, I have um, there's four categories that I like to think about, and these are adapted from the yoga tradition, but they're really applicable to all traditions. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first is. Um, the pathway of knowledge and wisdom. So that could be listening to podcasts, attending lectures, having a teacher or a guide, learning about all this stuff, learning about the nature of reality, about the nature of consciousness. And that's been largely my path for a lot of this. And it sounds like you've been down that road as well. Um, but that's, that's an important one. And, and I mentioned these four um, with the context that they are interrelated but some people might be drawn to one more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually they all kind of swirl together as I think people elevate toward a higher level of consciousness because you can't have one without the others. Mm-hmm. But maybe you're, you hear one of the things I say, and you're drawn to that. And that might be a starting point. If you're looking for a place to start for me, this wisdom path, that's where I started. I was listening to podcasts, reading books, mm-hmm. etc. Second is a selfless service. So that could be volunteering. It could be within your family. However you perceive that to be, to be, of service towards others, without thinking about potential gain towards yourself. Mm-hmm. It's really embodying this idea of interconnectedness. The third is the pathway of devotion. And that could be chanting, praying, um, but the general idea of, of being grateful for all that we've been given. And some would call it a love for the divine. Mm-hmm. That's the pathway of devotion. And the fourth is an energetic pathway. So this could be meditation, breathing exercises, qigong, yoga, sensory deprivation, physical health and nutrition, anything that is attuning the body toward higher states. So these four pathways, pathway of wisdom, selfless service, devotion, and energetic practices. Engaging in any or all of those would be helpful on the waking up um, line of development. Okay. Cleaning up is really looking at our own inner trauma, darkness, whatever we have unresolved in our lives. So that can involve introspection. I mean, that really takes effort because often this involves unpleasant aspects of our psyches that we might not want to think about, but really looking at past trauma and, and it could involve working with a psychotherapist or just a friend or someone that can help with that process. Um, I mentioned in my third book, the, pr- the practice of Ho Pono, the Hawaiian practice, where you say, um, I love you, I forgive you, or, I love you, please forgive me, I'm sorry, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, You can say those in whatever order you prefer, but you can, you say that toward people that might've hurt you and also to yourself. And for many people, that is a helpful practice, but there are many other practices that people have engaged in to clean up and and basically allow trauma to be cleared rather than bypassing it and saying, well,
0: I'm really awakened. I understand the
1: nature of consciousness. I don't want to deal with that other stuff. The cleaning up important.
0: Is that, is that the same as shadow self? I hear that term thrown around and I'm like, not really sure what that means, but I kind of get the feeling it's, it's like that, it's like that, that darker side of maybe your personality or the, the muddy, (laughs) the muddy stuff that's, um, within us that we haven't really cleaned up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's basically it. Okay. Um, And you're reminding me of an interview I saw recently with a doctor who practices this whole Pono Pono method. Mm-hmm. And in his words, I guess, from the Hawaiian tradition, he says that life is all about making amends. So when we do this, when we say, um, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. We are making amends toward whatever is, is impure within our, in our psyche. So everything that comes into our life from this perspective is a, is a mechanism for us to be able to clear. Mm-hmm. And it's another way of saying karma. I just had never heard that phrase before making amends. Karma is essentially making amends. It's, it's balancing imbalances.
0: I think of, um, karma as not being your conscious choice. Whereas, um, what you were mentioning earlier, that, that choice to deal with maybe some of your traumas or to forgive you, you're actually consciously making that choice yeah. where when I think about karma, it's, it's going to happen <laughs> kind of like it's going to happen. Or you're going to have to deal with it based on, on past choices. Is that, Fair to say, or accurate, or am I mis- misinterpreting?
1: Yeah. And I agree with that characterization. I think karma, is almost like a, a magnetic attraction into our yeah. lives, that which we need to evolve and making amends is like a, a mechanism of clearing that karma. I would say it's related to it. Okay. And it's part of the, the cleaning up process. Yeah. Like so many of these topics, it's, it's like taking a different lens on a concept and there are many lenses that we can take sure. towards it, but the principles are very similar throughout
0: yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so the then going into the um third which yep. uh you had said now I'm... growing up. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Yes. So that is I mean, can these happen? Do they happen in that order? Do they happen simultaneously? I would think they would kind of happen simultaneously or in bits and pieces. Or do yeah, the I first think... two need to really kind of be well on their way before the growing up starts to happen.
1: My opinion on this is that it really depends on the person because you could have someone that is really grown up, for example, but understands nothing about spirituality, maybe as a complete atheist and physicalist, but is able to, to be accountable for one, for his or her Mm -hmm. own actions, understands, and is able to see through darkness and say, no, that person's trying to manipulate me. Mm -hmm. He or she is looking righteous on the surface, but no, 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 there's something hidden there. Mm -hmm. Someone could, could not be very awakened spiritually and have this aspect of having grown up. And also, I think one could clean up without being necessarily spiritual, because maybe there's a trauma that someone wants to deal with and um, wants to clear that. So I think there is, it depends on the person. And it also depends on the willingness of the individual to want to go into each of these areas. Maybe there are other lines of development as well. I think Ken Wilber has explored this more fully. But these three, I think, encompass a lot. Um, But for me, this growing up category is a, a form of maturation. And how does one grow up and start to become more accountable and start to recognize that there is both good and evil? It's at least in my own life, it's a willingness to engage with that. Mm-hmm. So it's a mental shift that really all of them are, are mental shifts. It's, it's yeah. setting our intention and setting our compass and saying, no, I'm going to focus on this. I'm not going to hide from it in any of the categories.
0: Yeah. Cool. I like that. Um, so for you, what have been some of your biggest pitfalls along this journey?
1: So many, it's hard to, it's hard <laughs> to know where to start. <laughs> uh, it's the hardest part for me, I, I guess I would call this a pitfall, is the ability to continue to letting, letting go and being surrendered and recognizing that I can't control everything and the future is gonna happen in the way that it will happen. I try to project always, so I, I have to constantly bring myself back and, and balance both not being irresponsible and saying, well, I'm not going to think about the future at all because I'm being present, with I, I need to be present and not think about the future too much. There's a balance in that mm-hmm. that I, I, I constantly manage. So a good example is with my books and my podcasts. Whenever I, I put something out and, and put my thoughts in one place, I am so eager to, to publish it the next day. But there's a process that has to happen with editing and the publication mm-hmm. process. Even if we you know, submitted the manuscript tomorrow, it takes time for that to happen. So there's a patience that comes along with that, that over time develops and the recognition that it will come out at the right time when it is yeah. supposed to come out. And whenever Mark thinks it should come out is probably coming from a place of a limited intelligence. And maybe there's a better timing for it that mm-hmm. Mark just needs to take a back seat. So that's one is learning to surrender and consistently doing that. Um, with regard to cleaning up there, I think there's a human tendency to want to bypass unpleasant emotions, yeah. especially really old ones, things we haven't thought about in a while. Cause now when I look at my life, there's, there's almost different phases. There's like the pre awakening and post awakening. If we want to use that delineation
0: mm-hmm. where I
1: say awakening loosely, the recognition that there is more that, yeah, that, that was the shift for me about five that years first ago.
0: Crack. <laughs> in the, that's the way I look at it. It's like that right. first crack that let a little bit of that thought process in and I find when that happens you can't unsee it you can't unfeel it you know you can ignore it for a while but it's going to keep popping up until you kind of digest it more and start doing something with it I think
1: yes yeah well, that's been my experience too I got yeah. to the point where I had seen too much where rationally I couldn't if I wanted to be intellectually honest I couldn't yeah. miss everything uh, but these even though there are these distinct phases of life and probably other ones too I still have to deal with whatever happened pre-awakening, even though I was living that life in a different state, the body holds trauma. There's just trauma that's unprocessed or things that haven't been processed in some way. So the recognition that we have to deal with those things, that's something that I constantly have to deal with. And then also uh, constantly acknowledging how little I know, because each time I think I learn something and I have, I have a general framework for it. And there's something new that pops up where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't really understand that nuance before. And maybe I don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, I've written three books. I didn't think I was going to write one, and then I didn't yeah. think I was going to write two. And now, so maybe I will write more. Yeah. Um, but like with regard to my third book, in End Upside Down Liberty, it covers topics related to politics and economics and some of these darker ideas, which would be nice to say, I, I don't want to think about those things, but I, did, I didn't know about them. I just, I was unaware of these different areas. So it's always important to remember that whatever I think I know, I'm sure there's something around the corner or lots of details or just who knows what that I still don't understand.
0: Sure. Let's, let's talk about that third book. Tell me what motivated you to write it and what your hope is with sharing it with people.
1: Well, my first two books focus on this idea of the one mind and the implications for how we live our lives individually. The third book is, well, how should we structure society? If we understand these principles, what's the optimal form of governance, both politically and economically? And where did that come from for me? I mean, I was never interested in politics in any way. I didn't watch the news or follow any of that stuff. I was so in my business world, I, I, I couldn't have even told you really the main differences between political affiliations. I, I just, It was of no interest to me. And when everything hit with COVID, uh, all of a sudden political decisions were impacting everyone's lives on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And a third party was saying, this business is essential. This business is not because we say so. You can leave your house or you can't leave your house because we say so. We're gonna tell you what kind of risk you can take in your life. So all of a sudden political decisions were very important for everyone. And that led me to look into things. And I started to see censorship. I started to see, doctors coming out saying certain things that they were observing and the media and social media saying, no, you can't say that. And you're blocked and you're a crazy person for describing your experiences. And I said, oh, okay. I've seen this before. I've seen this with consciousness research. I've seen it professionally. A lot of stuff that happens in that world. Um, So I was familiar with it and I I identified something was going on. So it allowed me to follow things closely. This was early in the pandemic. I I knew something was up. And the more I researched, the more I realized that The ideas could be summarized with a central concept, and the concept is is around how we structure society. The term that I use in the book, in political theory, it's known as statism. It's the belief that society should be organized with a structure that has essentially unilateral decision-making authority, ultimate decision-making power, it's essentially a monopoly, and we don't have a contract with it. We don't have an explicit contract with it. <laughs> so we yeah. create this entity that's going to run society and don't worry, we elected these people. So it's okay that they're in this monopolistic position. They will take care of us. And that's the way we run society. Yeah, It's based on this form of trust, this idea of a social contract that the citizens have gotten together somehow and are consenting to be governed by this body that we don't have a contract with. So the social contract, which a lot of people reference is to me, a mythical abstraction. There is no contract that we have. And that's an important idea. Like with most service providers, you have a contract specifying the services, specifying the price, all these things. And yet the government provides services like many other service providers, but we don't have a contract. So they set the price as whatever they want it to be, taxation, Um, you're forced to pay even if you don't want the services or even if you don't want your money going to certain causes, you are coerced into paying. I mean, I know that can be a, a paradigm shift to think about it that way, but taxation is not fully voluntary. The way in which the government obtains its funds is: pay us or else. You go to jail or your assets are seized. So I was looking at this paradigm. That's what the book is about.
0: Yeah, I, I gotcha. And that just two things that jumped to the forefront for me. The um, you know, when the pandemic first started. Again, I have enough of a biology background to, I got really curious and I started delving into things and real quick got the feeling something wasn't right that, you know, as far as, um, and, and I'm not going to go too, too far into this cause it can get really touchy, but, um, you know, there were, there were plenty of things intellectually and in my gut and intuition wise, that was like, something's wrong. And when censorship started to happen, that was a big one for me. And I thought, regardless of what you're feeling about the origins of this or or different little things within the whole story within the pandemic, um, censorship to me, that was a big problem. Uh, It was a huge red flag, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I instantly, if I raised any question about being concerned about censorship, it was like, ah, you're a Trumper. And I'm like, what does that have to do with right. being concerned about censorship? Or you're you're against science. <laughs> like, the science. And I'm like, no, this is just purely about censorship. This is purely about um doctors who are seeing patients every day, the people who are actually working with people who are coming in incredibly sick and dying, wanting to share ideas and being shut down immediately or being called a conspiracy theorist. And um, that really bothered me. And that was very concerning. So that made me pay attention even closer, which I think is what the opposite of what they, I think, that censorship was trying to accomplish, but it was more like if you are so going to put so much energy into hiding certain opinions and thoughts, then I'm going to look at it even further, you know? Yeah. And um, it, it is concerning. And I do think, I do think we are at a huge moment in human history right now. And I think um, for me, I don't know if you want to call it serendipity, synchronicity, I've had in the last few weeks, I think five um, people or groups or um, opportunities to examine consciousness and especially collective consciousness for the purpose of shifting um, the paradigm that we're in right now. And when that happens, I pay attention. (laughs) There's no mistake around why that's happening. And it makes me excited. You know, I'm very excited to connect with these different people's uh, platforms and their thoughts and take these different classes that are coming up in my life, because I feel like there's something important here and it will be... um, a positive in my life and the lives of others. So I'm excited about the journey and I'm excited when things like this happen and you're one piece of that puzzle. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, I can relate to so much of what you just said.
0: Yeah. 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 And is there anything more that you want to share either, um, about your third book coming out or anything in general?
1: Um, just at a high level, one of the, I propose an alternative to this traditional structure because I think the problems that we have in the world, so many of them right now, wouldn't necessarily be eliminated, but they would be much less severe if we had a different system. Because evil people and evils would still exist in, metaphysically in the universe, but our system that we have right now, where we have the, this this body that controls society, a small number of people controlling the masses, that enables an amplification of really dark things. Mm-hmm. So to me, like that's the core. Issue that has to be solved eventually for humanity is we have to decentralize that and shift the structure. Um, That's ultimately what I propose. I propose something that's more also consistent metaphysically. So if you look at the golden rule, which is built into the nature of reality as some kind of a natural law, it is impermissible spiritually to initiate aggression against other people and their property. That would go against the golden rule to say, I don't care where you got your money from, I'm gonna take it. And if you don't accept that, uh, then you're going to go to jail or something. To me, the, the things that the way that the structures is set up violate spiritual principles. So we have to move into something that is much more voluntary, where we're voluntarily exchanging. Um, and that would be more in alignment with spirituality. So maybe as we evolve into this new stage of consciousness, the way in which we do we do governance, is going to have to shift too. Because someone with a spiritual mindset wouldn't Want to be in that position of power where they're initiating aggression in some capacity upon other people
0: so that's it that's a, yeah it would be self-harmful in the long run
1: right it would be right. self-harmful for them to do that uh, so the consciousness shift needs to happen in that direction which is related to the waking up too it's all interrelated mm-hmm. and i'm reminded here of a quote from one of yogananda's gurus that he mentions in autobiography of yogi Um, Sri Lahiri Mahasaya, he said, always remember that you belong to no one and no one belongs to you. (laughs) That simple saying would go a long way in thinking about politics, wherever you are on the spectrum. That seems to be lost sometimes. There's this idea, well, I have my beliefs and therefore they should be forced upon everyone else. To me, that violates basic spiritual principles.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, how do you, that's a huge... Change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, probably will take quite some time to get there. So, how do we start?
1: Well, I, I do mention this in my book because I'm yeah. not suggesting that we're there tomorrow. We have okay. to start somewhere. Yeah. And that's how I look at it. It starts always for me with a shift in consciousness for the recognition that something is off base. I had never even thought about these principles. I, I didn't know, is there a Uh, an alternative to traditional governance. We're just so born into the system that we don't question it. So to start questioning it is is step one. And the way I look at it um, is that it's, it's these two shifts in parallel. One is shifting from physicalism to one mind, consciousness is primary and also shifting away from statism as a mindset Mm -hmm. that we need to have this monopolistic body that can unilaterally do all these things without our consent sometimes mentally making the shift to, wait, we don't have to be in that system. We can be in another system. And who knows what that will mean in terms of consciousness shifts. Who knows what that will mean in terms of the way in which people interpret the government edicts, including law enforcement. Because if law enforcement says, wait, this is unethical. I mean, like in Nazi Germany, there were so many laws. The government's you know, mandate of right and wrong, though they were clearly immoral, but it was the moral mm-hmm. thing to do to follow the law. So you end up in these conundrums of, if you're going to be moral and follow the law, you're also being immoral. If law yeah. enforcement were to appreciate that too, how could things shift? So I don't know how a shift would happen, but it's going to start with the mindset and the recognition of this, what I would call a wolf in sheep's clothing, something that seems virtuous. Oh, it's it's always for your safety. We're going to take away your rights for your own good because we know what's best for you. Yeah. So to start to look through that and say, hmm, the person, they claim to be egalitarian and so nice on TV, but maybe they're more... There's more to the story than what they say.
0: Yeah, if I recall, I mean, Native Americans were put on reservations for their own safety from those who might view them as less than, and uh, Japanese Americans were put in internment camps for their own safety, right? And um, I mean, we could go on and on with uh, Nazi Germany, etc so i definitely think sometimes when it's when it's for your own good that definitely needs to be questioned <laughs> yes um and in your opinion what is the opposite of state
1: st- statism statism yeah i mean yeah. what is
0: the inverse the term, of that
1: the term that i use is is known as voluntarism where all interactions are voluntary so essentially what we call government would disappear, but the services would not disappear. They would turn into service providers, which offices offer a service that people could pay for voluntarily if they choose to engage in that. So you could have all kinds of societies and communities, but the engagements are not compulsory in the same mm-hmm. way they are now, where things are forced upon us in a given territory. And if you can leave, you could in theory, but then you're just under a different type of compulsory system. So there's not the same, it's not as voluntary as mm-hmm. this opposing Um, idea would be. And so the way I I frame things is like a two by two matrix, two axes. One is highly spiritual, meaning one mind on on the, let's call it the the horizontal axis. You have one mind on one side, highly spiritual. The other side, you have physicalism, which is like atheistic, not spiritual. Mm -hmm. But you also, there's a political axis, the vertical axis. On the bottom, you have statism, which is the traditional governance. The top, you have voluntarism, which is decentralized, what I described. So there's like four quadrants of Mm -hmm. what I'll call metaphysical political theory. What I would advocate as the ideal is this um, non-dual or spiritual voluntarism. Non-dual just means one mind. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Because you could also, you could have someone who is an atheist, but also a voluntarist and says, well, I I don't think the government's doing it right. And there are these four categories. And you could have someone who's highly spiritual, but says, no, no, we need to have a traditional state. Um, But I think we need to move towards This spiritual voluntarism eventually,
0: and I'm just picturing like in math the four quadrants. quadrants. I I draw it out in the book. Yeah, Yeah, do you? yeah. That's what I'm picturing. So I'm like, how's that? How's that all gonna balance out and work? But I I look forward to checking out your new book. And you, you think that'll be out here soon? Yes.
1: Yes, hopefully late September, early October. Okay, very soon.
0: Cool. And um, maybe we'll follow up down the road uh, after time has passed and as as our minds keep expanding and growing and we'll, we'll see where we're at with things.
1: Yeah, that would be fun. It'll be fun to see where we are then in yeah. terms of our thinking because I'm sure there's so much that I haven't thought of that you haven't thought of that will like, exactly. be obvious to us in a few years.
0: Exactly. It's always evolving, which is what makes it so exciting. Well, again, Mark, I thank you for sharing this conversation today. I think it's a really important conversation to have. Um, I think there's so much here. If people check out his books, they, they really are chocked full of super cool concepts and lots of references to other books and studies and um, philosophers and philosophies. And um, they're just really fun to look at and exciting and mind blowing. (laughs) And so I, I hope you'll take some time to check out his books or listen to his podcast and, and, you know, keep an open mind with your own spiritual growth and your path in this life. So I thank you again, Mark. I look forward to connecting in the future. All the best to you.
1: Thank you very much, Michelle. And thanks for all that you're doing too.
0: Absolutely. And one other thing um, I'll put all your links in my show notes, but real quick, what's the best way for people to find you, connect with you, learn more about you, you know where where can they find your books, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Sure, my books are on Amazon. Um, an end to upside down thinking, an end to upside down living, and the new one is an end to upside down liberty. My website is my name, M a R K G O B E dot com, and I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and it's Mark Gober author.
0: And then your podcast.
1: My podcast is called Where Is My Mind, and it's an eight episode narrative series in which I interviewed dozens of people in the space. And that's available on Apple podcast, Spotify uh, called where is my mind?
0: Cool. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great Thank day. You. Man, I could have talked to Mark for hours. He has so much that he's been sharing through his podcast. Where is my mind? And also through his first two books, an end to upside-down thinking, and an end to upside-down living. All of these touch on and explore a wide range of topics from physicalism versus one mind theory, psychic phenomena, past lives and reincarnation, karma, near-death experiences, and life review, manifesting and prayer, meditation, spiritual awakenings, epigenetics, and the list goes on and on. In general, I think it's really interesting to explore the concept of how our collective intentions and consciousness can affect reality. And I'm excited to read his book, which will be coming out soon, called An End to Upside Down Liberty. In this new book, Mark explores how governments have been responsible for brainwashing, slavery, and genocide, and in a more subtle instances, how civil liberties can be slowly eroded. Taking concepts about consciousness introduced in his previous two books and on his podcast, he suggests an approach that can be used to steer humanity's future away from enslavement and towards liberty. I think it's a great topic that we all need to be looking at right now, and I'm definitely going to check out the book. I suggest you do as well, or at least look at his first two books and go from there. His podcast is full of great interviews with really interesting people who are well-educated in in many aspects of the metaphysical and near-death experiences. and past life, reincarnation, all of that. So lots of yummy, interesting things to explore and chew on. I hope that you'll check it out. And if you like what you heard here today, as always, please share with friends and family or share on your social media accounts. And you can go to uh, different podcasting platforms such as Apple and leave a review that helps me Get out there and share these great interviews and conversations with more people. Thanks so much, you guys. Much love to y'all.